The reading is from Psalm 91, page 600 in the Church Bibles. Psalm 91, page 600. He, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you make the Most High your dwelling, even the Lord, who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And before we begin, let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the blessing of the Psalms. We thank you for Psalm 91, which is a massive encouragement, but also a puzzle. We pray, Lord, that you will give us minds which are open to your word, and that you will give us hearts which are submissive. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now, if you've been with us during the last few weeks, as Phil said, then you'll know that we've been going through some of the Psalms. And this morning, we come to Psalm 91, where the topic is security in God. Security in God, which I'm sure you will agree is a really important topic. But Psalm 91, from one perspective, is actually about the topic of suffering. And suffering is something we all have in common. We all suffer. If you haven't suffered yet, the only reason is that you're not old enough. <laughs> Your time will come. But let's be even more specific by asking a question. If I put my trust in God, will I still suffer? If I put my trust in the God of the universe, Will I still suffer? That's the question that sits behind and underneath Psalm 91. So look at verse 1. 
He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He's saying that if you dwell, if your life, your purpose, your heart's home, as it were, is placed under God's protection, then you will rest. You will be safe. You will be secure in the shade of his sovereign, almighty, all-powerful oversight. And look at verse 2. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. The psalmist is saying that he trusts God, and if you do the same, then you too will know that God is your refuge, that God is your fortress, that God is someone you can trust implicitly and completely with everything you have and with everything you are. And that is because he is the almighty, sovereign, all-powerful God. That's the promise in the opening statement of Psalm 91. Now, you may well ask, what does that mean, practically? And so he goes on in anticipation of your question. By the face of it, he makes, and on the face of it, he makes some staggering claims. So look at verse 3. He will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. You'll be rescued from deadly situations like a bird is rescued from a bird trapper's snare. Verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. If you and others with you are in a deadly situation, then even if they are killed, you won't be. Verse 10. No harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. You'll go through life without being harmed, in fact, without suffering at all. Verse 12. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. God's angels will protect and shield you so that you won't even stub your toe. Is that what the psalmist is saying? If you trust God, then not only will you be safe in his hands, but your life will be comfortable. Nothing bad will ever happen to you. You won't ever suffer, and you won't even stub your toe. That's what he seems to be saying on the face of it. Now, there are some people who would say, yes, that's exactly what he's saying. How could you possibly deny it? It's crystal clear. It's black and white. So, for example, Joel Osteen is, a, is the pastor of the largest church in the United States, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. I think it's weekly services. They have six weekly services, have a total of 43,000 attendees in one building. In his book entitled, Your Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential, he says this, God is a good God, and he gives good things to his children. No matter who has denigrated you or how much pain you've experienced in life, no matter how many setbacks you have suffered, you cannot allow yourself to accept that as the way life is supposed to be. No, God has better things in store for you. You must reprogram your mind with God's word, change that negative, defeated self-image, and start seeing yourself as winning, coming out on top. Start seeing that marriage as restored. Start seeing that business as flourishing. See your children as enjoying the good things of God. And then he says, 
You must see it through your eyes of faith, and then it will begin to happen. Is that what Psalm 91 is saying? Good things will happen to you if you see your life through the eyes of faith. Bad things will happen to you if you don't. Now, I haven't seen him comment on this passage, but I'm sure that Austin and others like him would surely point to verses 14 to 16 to justify their claim. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. So there you have it. If you love God and call on him, he will ensure that you will never suffer. If you don't, he won't. And logically, if you are suffering, it can't be because God is capricious. And it can't be because he's not in control. If you're suffering, it's because you don't love God enough. It's because you don't trust him enough. And it's because you lack faith. That has to be what Austin and others would conclude. So is that why Joseph suffered like he did, thrown into a pit to die and eventually sold as a slave? Is that why Job suffered like he did, waking up one morning to discover that he's gone from the prime of health with ten children, being one of the wealthiest men there is, to being wracked with an intense skin disease, losing everything he has and having to bury every one of his ten children? What about someone like James Chalmers? Chalmers was a Scottish-born Presbyterian, and he was a missionary for about 35 years. And during that time, sadly, his wife died. He remarried, and his second wife died. And he vowed to bury his sorrow in work for Christ. And so in the spring of 1901, Chalmers and his friend and colleague, Oliver Tompkins, were on a mission trip along the coast of New Guinea. And they came to an area known as the Fly River region. They pulled ashore, and they went looking for local tribes. But they didn't return when they were expected to. And so a search party was sent out to find them. The search party returned sometime later with the news. Chalmers and Tompkins had been clubbed to death, hacked into pieces, cooked, and eaten. So did Job, Joseph, Tompkins, and Chalmers suffer as they did because they didn't see their lives through the eyes of faith. There's probably a couple of hundred of you here this morning. As far as I know, at least half a dozen of you have or have had cancer. Some of you have lost loved ones, in some cases children and grandchildren. Was that because you didn't see your life through the eyes of faith? Is Psalm 91 saying that if only you had trusted God, you wouldn't have suffered? Is that the right way to read Psalm 91? Well, no, it's not the right way to read Psalm 91. And I'll give you three reasons why. Firstly, because that's what Satan wants you to believe. Secondly, because that's not what the Bible says. And thirdly, because of Christ. So firstly, because that's what Satan wants you to believe. Now maybe you're thinking it's a little bit scary that Mark would have that kind of insight. Well, <laughs> I don't. But scripture does. 
So we'll look at two passages to prove the point. Turn to Job chapter 1, page 509. <clears throat> Job chapter 1, page 509. Now the story of Job is not only a wonderful insight into suffering, it's also an amazing view and an amazing, of an amazing account of a dialogue between God and Satan. So reading from verse 6. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Talk about being thrown in front of a bus. Then the Lord said to Satan, sorry, does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hand so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then. Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. And so Satan is allowed to attack Job's family and his possessions. But Job remains faithful and he does not deny God. Satan's then allowed to also attack Job personally, himself, but still he remains faithful and does not deny God. Now there's a lifetime of sermons in this little account, but for now, just notice that Satan's view is that the only reason that Job trusts God is because God, as Satan puts it, has put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has. He's protected him. That's Satan's accusation. He trusts you because you don't let him suffer. If you let him suffer, he won't trust you. That's what Satan wants you to believe. Trust God and he won't let you suffer. That's what he wants you to believe. And that's because he sees your inevitable suffering which will follow as the opportunity to dislodge your trust and to dislodge your faith. That's the first passage. The next passage contains the only account of Satan quoting scripture directly. And he quotes from our psalm today, from Psalm 91. So please turn to Matthew chapter 4, page 967. And he quotes this to Christ himself. It's the account of Jesus in the desert being tempted by Satan. Page 967. <clears throat> Reading from verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 91, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. 
Satan is trying to derail Christ from his mission. And so he quotes Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, and he's saying, come on, Jesus. You know that if you trust God, he won't even let you stub your toe. His underlying message, the subtext, is that when God inevitably lets you suffer, it will prove you can't trust him. And he does exactly the same thing to us. Step one, we hear what seems to be the truth. Step two, we're disappointed and confused when we inevitably suffer. Step three, bitterness sets in. Step four, we walk away. That's his motive, that's his agenda, to get you to step four. So that's the first reason not to read Psalm 91, thinking it says that if you trust God, you won't suffer, because that's what Satan wants you to believe. And the second reason is because that's not what the Bible says. So Job is in the middle of his agony, and he's in the middle of his suffering, and three of his friends hear about it, and they go to him. Now, at first, they do exactly the right thing. They weep with him. They sit with him. They say nothing for seven days. They're just there to be with him, and that's really commendable. But then they start discussing Job's situation at length. And what they basically tell him is that he's suffering because his faith and his trust in God are inadequate. He's suffering because he did something wrong. And so Eliphaz says to Job, one of his three friends, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? And then there's a back and forth that ensues between the four of them that goes on for 37 chapters. Until eventually God interjects and he says this to Eliphaz. He says, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Not what you want to hear from the all-powerful God of the universe. Now, the book of Job was written way before Psalms. But Job's friends would have read Psalm 91 as saying that if you trust God, you won't suffer, and if you suffer, it's because you're not trusting God. And God himself sets them straight. You have not spoken of me what is right. So we know from Job that if you're a believer and you suffer, it's not related to your trust in God. Now when you get to the Gospels, you soon realize that believers will still suffer. So in Luke chapter 21, Jesus warns his disciples that they will be betrayed, that they will be hated, and even that they will be killed. And that's what happens to almost every one of them bar one, as far as we know, of the Apostles. And that's what happens to Christians across the ages, and that's what's happening to Christians today. And elsewhere in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11, we're told in one breath that by faith some of the saints of old escaped the edge of the sword, and by faith some of the saints of old were killed by the sword, both by faith. So we know from the New Testament that if you're a believer and you suffer, it's not related to your trust in God. And then there are the Psalms. In Psalm 44, verse 22, the psalmist, speaking to God, says this, Yet for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
There's also Psalm 90, and Psalm 90 is obviously an important context for us before Psalm 91. And in Psalm 90, the psalmist speaks of being afflicted by God, of God allowing him to suffer. And in verse 13, he cries out to God and he says, Relent, O Lord, how long will it be? How long? So it would be insulting the psalmist to think that he, knowing all this, would say precisely the opposite in Psalm 91, wouldn't it? And even in Psalm 91, there is a hint of the fact that life won't be trouble-free when he says in verse 15, he will call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. The inference is that there will be trouble, trouble to be delivered from. So we know from Job, and we know from the Old Test, from the New Testament, and we know from the Psalms that if you're a believer and you suffer, it's not related to your trust in God. We'll come back to Psalm 91. But for now, I'd like to move on to the third reason why it's wrong to read Psalm 91 as saying that if you trust God, you won't suffer. The first was because that's what Satan wants you to believe. The second was because that's not what the Bible says. And the third is because of Christ. Now, I'm not focusing on the general but important question of why a good God allows people to suffer this morning, because that's not the main topic. Although the Bible does have clear answers to those questions. But given Psalm 91, what we need to do is we do need to briefly look at the question of why those who trust God are still allowed to suffer. Why, when we have a relationship with a loving God, does he still allow us to suffer? When Paul sat down and wrote his letter to the church in Rome, one of the topics he wanted to address was suffering. So we'll look at what he says about it. Please turn to Romans chapter 8, page 1135. <laughs> Romans 8, page 1135. <clears throat> now Paul knows that there will be suffering and he experienced it in no small measure himself so in Romans chapter 8 he tries to put suffering in its proper context for us and he says this in verse 18 I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul knows that you struggle to put your life, which is over in a nanosecond, in the context of an eternal life to come. So he's saying that no matter what you're going through, it's no comparison, no comparison to how glorious your life will be in eternity. Don Carson, in a lecture on the topic of suffering, makes reference to an Australian friend of his by the name of Frank. And Frank struggles intensely with all manner of ailments, a list far too long to remember. And Carson said that if you went up to Frank and asked him, Frank, how are you, really? And Frank would reply, well, you know, I'm not struggling with anything that a good, a good resurrection won't fix Frank's right. His sufferings in this life aren't worth comparing to what he'll have in the life to come. And that's the first thing we have to note as Christians. There's an eternal context you must bear in mind, no matter how difficult your situation. 
But Paul then goes on to explain something and give us a slight hint of God's mysterious ways of working while allowing you to suffer in verse 28. And in verse 28 he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. A favorite verse for Christians. God works for the good of those who love him. But we often forget the little clause at the beginning. In all things. Day-to-day things. Good things. But also bad, unfathomable, evil things. God works in, through, behind all things. That they together will be for the good of those who love him. He is not saying that everything will turn out okay in this life. He is not saying that everything that happens in this life has a silver lining in and of itself. Evil things are evil things. He's saying rather that everything will be worked together by God for our ultimate and eternal good. And that's why Joseph can turn to his brothers who sold him into slavery so many years before and say to them, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. And he says that because God was working for the good of his family, and in fact for the survival of thousands, when he put Joseph through through the experience of separation and slavery. Now there are sometimes with hindsight, given we are sometimes with hindsight, given that kind of understanding about the suffering in our lives, but not usually. And it would be naive and helpful to say, naive and unhelpful to say to someone, going through an experience that feels like hell on earth, don't worry, one day you'll know why this all happened, it's fine, Romans 8, 28, it's all for your good. That person is a Job's comforter and a lousy companion. Best ask them to be quiet or to leave. Not necessarily in that order. We may never know. We may never know, not in this life anyway, we may never know why we suffer. But we do know it's not meaningless. We do know it's not without purpose. And we know that evil will be utterly defeated in the end. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on to explain why we can be that confident. So look at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. And that's the key to understanding Psalm 91. That's where the answer is. Psalm 91 means two things about your suffering if you're a Christian. One is that, yes, God does often amazingly deliver his children from physical harm while others around them are falling. Look at how he delivered the Israelites from Egypt. 
Look at how he delivered Joseph's family from a sure and a certain starvation. Look at how he delivered the Jews from genocide by making Esther queen in an exiled land. And there are countless other examples. So yes, God often does amazingly deliver his children. Equally, God often does allow us to suffer. But in doing so, what he assures us is that we will be delivered in the end. We will not suffer eternally, and any suffering until then is mysteriously overruled for our good. And that's all because, and only because, we are in Christ. It's all because nothing, that death, life, angels, demons, present, future, nothing in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ our Lord. And that's why God says this about you at the end of Psalm 91. Because you love me, says the Lord, I will rescue you. I will protect you, for you acknowledge my name. You will call upon me, and I will answer you. I will be with you in trouble. I will deliver you and honor you with, long, with eternal life. I will satisfy you and show you my salvation. It's a mistake to read Psalm 91 superficially as promising you a trouble-free life if you're a believer but it's an unimaginable blessing and an encouragement to read it when you understand that regardless of whether life is difficult or not, it's not to do with how much you trust God. It's to do with the fact that you're secure in Christ and he will show you his salvation. That's what Psalm 91 is about. Now, of course, if you're not a Christian, then while there are some answers as to why you suffer, they're all cold comfort because for you, it will not end. For you, there is no assurance, and there is no relief to come. There is only one resolution, and that's through Christ. How could you not want this? Charles Spurgeon was a pastor at Metropolitan Tabernacle in London during the 19th century. And he was one of the greatest preachers at the time. He struggled for many years with various illnesses, with severe depression, with a range of ailments. And this is what he said about Psalm 91. It is impossible that any ill should happen to the man who is beloved of the Lord. The most crushing calamities can only shorten his journey and hasten, hasten him to his reward. Ill to him is no ill, but only good in a mysterious form. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him, for everything is overruled for good. Happy is he who is in such a case. He is secure when others are in peril. He lives where others die. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the encouragement of a psalm in which you promise that you will show those who love you your salvation. We pray, Lord, that your hand of peace, that your hand of rest, that your hand of mercy will be on all of those who are suffering at the moment, whether it be from physical ills or emotional or relational. We pray that you will have the mercy and the grace to give us the strength to remember that we are eternal beings and that whatever suffering we may be going through now 
will come to an end. And we pray that you will help those here who are not believers to place their trust and their faith in you. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.